There were animal noises, but the animals had no names. There were shapes, but the shapes had no names. There were people, but even they had no names. There was only wonder and curiosity and hunger and thirst, needs felt and needs met. But even those things had no name, so who's to say? There they were, proto-humans in a place that was alive. In the presence of the divine, a breeze blowing in the evenings, the feel of it on their skin so something. And there you were, a baby, laying on a surface, a softness, surrounded, I hope, by love, without a handle for anything. My friend Lulu has written about the dangers of language, how it organizes and orders the world around us into categories. She writes about the dangers of all language, but she targets and uses as her primary example the word fish. Going back to, the word, to Aristotle, the word fish gathers up into itself things that live in water, things that lay eggs, animals that are both bony and cartilaginous. A fish, something any child can recognize, its telltale fins, its telltale mouth shape, impersonated. The problem, as Lulu writes, is that fish don't exist, not as a scientific category. Many of the animals caught up in that word are, she says, more closely related to us than to each other. And maybe that strikes you as untrue, but I'm sorry to tell you you're wrong, like ask a scientist. Um, and maybe it strikes you as unimportant, but Lulu makes the case that once we start to organize the world into false categories like fish, the word that we have claimed runs like a rivulet through reality. And wonder and unknowableness and, and learnableness of the world and it cuts grooves, deep grooves that we have trouble finding our way out of. So there's Adam, or whatever his name was, Adam sitting in the new something called air and he gets started giving names to each living creature, to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field and whatever the man called each living creature, that's what it's, that's what's its name. And he starts, we start to get it wrong. By the way, just so you know that I know, it is shocking to read this story from Genesis 2. I always read the one from Genesis 1, God creating people in their image with a balance. But this Genesis 2 version with its gender binary and the story of that rib, a story that, by the way, I got taught in the 1980s, not the Middle Ages. That story explains why women have one fewer rib than men. That's, or the other way around. That's not true. Anyway, it's shocking. It's shocking to read about God wanting to make for a helper, uh, make a helper for Adam's partner. Anyway, okay, so he's done it. Adam's done it. He's got everything organized and labeled and he's still alone. And God's God in this version of the story, God makes another person and Adam classifies them too. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he starts, we start to get it wrong. Planning this week's service, Yasko, Vince, and I briefly but seriously considered listening after the sermon to John Cage's composition 433. 
You know it. If you don't, a song in three movements for any instrument or combination of instruments, the sheet music indicates that no music is played for the length of the song, which is four minutes and 33 seconds. And we almost did it. We also considered playing an ep excerpt of the piece. <laughs> like, from John Cage's 433 is what the bulletin would have said. Maybe just the third movement, which is a minute 20 seconds. Because, like, how much silence can we possibly handle together, you know? I loved the idea, and I mean, like, to a certain degree, all of us did for a while. I always want more silence, and I knew that just as John Cage intended, setting aside that time would mean we'd sit here like Vince prayed, not in silence, but, but hearing the traffic and, and crayons clicking together and somebody's feet on the pews and passersby and maybe dogs or birds and maybe the building and the roof stretching and our own breath and whatever the sound of quiet is in here. John Cage, by having his name and those numbers on a page, would hold the space for us. And then I wouldn't be on the hook, Vince wouldn't be on the hook, for asking you to sit here quietly wondering, how long are they going to make us do this? At the first church where I pastored, our evening service included a John Cage length of quiet after every sermon. And some nights it felt flat and dull and boring, and every night, a man named Carl would rustle through his backpack, seemingly filled with reusable plastic shopping bags. And on those nights, in the time of confession that followed, I would ask God to forgive me for resenting Carl again, for ruining our silence. Other nights, those four minutes of silence glittered and felt alive, like it was holding us, and, and we didn't quite make eye contact with each other, although we were sitting in the round and there was an alertness. We were together and, and quiet, almost like we were on the cusp of laughing together, but, but we didn't laugh. And, and even on those glittery nights, Carl would unzip his bag and rifle through the bags. It was always my job to keep time, like as subtly as I could. And then it was my job to end the silence, announcing it was time to pray. At the second church where I pastored, in the summers we had a backyard concert evening prayer series, kind of like a roving lawn lounge with liturgy. One night in the late summer, one of those evenings when dusk comes sooner than you're expecting, I invited people into silence. And invited, it's so disingenuous, like when a clergy people in person invites you into silence, and then they're like, oh, you're gonna be quiet. You know, you don't really have a lot of choice. But we were quiet because I wanted to, and they sort of didn't have a choice except rudeness. So we were quiet, and it did turn out to be beautiful. It was a silence of the glittering kind. But even that night, it was my job to keep time and decide when to break it, and I felt as always like I was holding them hostage, like I really ought to break the silence. And then just when I was about to, the cicadas got that much louder, swelling, and I saw my friend Pat's face lifted up toward the treetops, radiant and appreciative, and I waited just a few moments or minutes more, and, and even that night, I was responsible. If we had played 433, even movement three of it, I wouldn't have been in charge. Yasko wouldn't have even had to take responsibility, although she would have been watching the clock. It would have been all John Cage's doing. His the frame that kept us here listening and waiting, asking, how long is this going to last? 
So we're preaching through these four spiritual types. And silence is not the only expression or the primary experience of this mystic spirituality, the type we're calling spirit on our little diagram of spiritual types. Refresher, last week we talked about the head or intellectual kind of engagement. We'll move on in coming weeks to the heart and and the hands. But the inability to say with any certainty who, what, how God is, is a key component of this kind of spirituality. The theological word for this kind of theological stance, uh, the stance of not saying, is apophatic. To maintain that we cannot accurately name God, that's apophatic. And those of us who live over here in this mystic spirit quadrant cling to that inability to name things, cling to mystery and wonder. We're moved by what we feel, the evening breeze, the love all around us, moved by the beauty of poetry and music, nature, metaphor, colors and shapes that can make us cry. How can a painting make me cry? So, so silence isn't the main point, but it is a feature of this kind of spirituality refusing at last to categorize God. Lulu was in the tub with her toddler when he first said it. And even though she devoted the last decade of her life to researching and writing about why it's such a dangerous word, Lulu was delighted. Fish, her baby said. And Lulu said, That's right! It was, she said, his 11th word in an essay called The 11th Word. And it was a word that opened up the rest of the world to him. Like, he already had some categories down. He already had dog. Any animal that walked by in real life or in a picture had a name. Dog. Bunny dog. Cow dog. Bear dog. Ant dog. All dogs. He already had duck. Any animal that flew by in real life or in a picture had a name. Pigeon duck, robin duck, cardinal duck, and now fish. A picture, a mosaic on a lakeshore drive underpass. Snakefish, turtlefish, all fish. Little baby taxonomer. Just like Adam there in the garden. Birds, cattle, woman, and then right away, mine, ruining it. Names give us a handle on things a way to grasp them, a way to conceive of things. Not all of us, of course. Some people think in pictures, famously the author and scientist Temple Grandin. Some people have no language at all and live their lives in that wordless place, the world always awash of impressions. From a worded place, I can't imagine their lives. Language gave Lulu's baby a way to understand the world. And also, she hypothesizes a reason to be terrified of what he could not name. Because somewhere in the process of learning, fish, dog, cattle, he might have gotten the false impression that it's possible to understand everything, to tag it, pin it down, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, and anything that does not have a place, terror. God, of course, refused to give God's name when asked. Said only, I am who I am. 
I will be what I will be. Not, I think, to terrorize us. There is, there can be a kind of flattening to a thing once it's named. A feeling of, I've got that. A sense that it doesn't need further investigation. There's a theory that Lulu applies to this, a theory she says, a theory that says that something unfinished holds more space in our brains. Something unfinished, unnamed, takes up more space in our memory than a thing that is done and labeled. It's a disputed theory, like even here, from my quadrant, I don't want to claim too much. Lulu takes this theory to mean that an unnamed thing can draw our attention more than a known one, or that an unnamed thing is more alive. For a period of unknowing, her son called dolphins dollfish. And thus, she said, he animated the world with his wrongness. And I don't know if any of that's right developmentally. Feels right to me, and as a mystic type, that's good enough. In my own experience, the people, places, things I've done that are familiar can flatten to a drone, to a matte finish, while the new ones glitter with uncertainty and possibility. Will we end up being friends? Is this the way back? And, and just how long is it going to take to get there? Living in the mystic spirit quadrant, this all feels like an invitation to keep wondering and being curious and feeling, not needing to name the love that is all around us, refusing to codify and claim what is not mine as mine. And it's true that sometimes in the night or the loneliness and pain of life, a beautiful impression is not enough for me. I want the words to know and name it. And I believe that God, that beautiful, eternally gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, mother of us all, when she hears me trying to say her name because I need her, because I love her, I believe she says, yes, that's right. Even while I'm still babbling, cow God, fish God, getting it wrong again and again, God repeats it back to me and to us in one of a million ways, knowing that we will mispronounce it, knowing that people will take her name in vain, knowing that we won't understand the fullness of who God is. But she knows who we are and how we're made. She knows we long to understand. She knows our days are like grass. How long is this going to last? Not long. And she delights to see us delight in the world, trying to learn it, trying to get the pronunciation down. She delights in us looking at her, our vague gaze on her face, trying, trying to focus until at last we settle and grow still.